Now, one of the answers, it seems to me, is a guaranteed uh, annual income, a guaranteed minimum income for all people and for all families of our country. There will be fewer and fewer jobs that a robot cannot do better. What to do about mass unemployment? This is going to be a massive social challenge. Um, and I think ultimately we will have to have some kind of universal basic income. I don't think we're going to have a choice. I think it is worthwhile for us to debate and deliberate and think hard about a minimum universal guaranteed income. I therefore propose that we abolish the present welfare system and a basic federal minimum would be provided. Those clips from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Elon Musk, and Robert Reich all speaking in support of a thing called Universal Basic Income, a program where the government hands over a sack of cash to all citizens on a regular basis, no questions asked. So it's it's really no surprise to hear those three supporting it, right? But that last clip, the one with Richard Nixon, Republican Richard Nixon, tricky dick, well, yeah, actually, he was the first U.S. president to endorse a version of universal basic income, and he damn near made it a reality in this country. This and many other surprising facts are coming up in the We Are Here podcast number 006 as we explore universal basic income. Good. Hello. Welcome to the We Are Here podcast. I'm Keith Brown, host of these here shenanigans. I hope you like them. Welcome. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time out of your day. Like the man with the sexy, sexy voice said at the top of the show, this is the Universal Basic Income episode, an idea whose time has come, at least according to some Silicon Valley types and progressive people, such as my guest today, Carl Winderquist, co-chair of the Basic Income Earth Network. We'll be talking with Carl in a few minutes. He's quite first in this topic, and it's a it's a good long dive into the topic that taught me a few things. I, um, I hope you stick around, and I hope you like it. But uh, the question, I suppose, is why? Why universal basic income? I will give you 43 million reasons right now. In the United States today, in the most powerful country this earth has ever seen, there are 43 million people living in poverty, according to the 2015 census data. I'm going to say that again. 43 million Americans live in poverty. Statistics can be tough to wrap your head around, especially big ones like that, 43 million people. I get it. Let me see if I can, let me see if I can make that a little clearer. Um, there are more poverty-stricken Americans than there are Canadians living in Canada. True. 35 million people-ish live in all of Canada. 43 million Americans live in poverty. I'll do you one better. There are nearly twice as many Americans living in poverty in the United States than there are human beings living in the, on the continent of Australia. Again, true. About 23 million people live in all of Australia. 43 million live in poverty in America. <laughs> That's some grim shit, right? 
All right. So um, poverty in the United States is defined as a family of four living on $24,000 a year or less. So if you do that math, and it's, you know, if I can do it, anybody can, uh, that's a salary of roughly $462 a week for a family of, of, of four. For a family of four, $462 a week. It, 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 it's insane. And in this great country of ours, the World Health Organization estimates that 12.7% of U.S. households, that's about one in every eight households, experience something that is euphemistically called food insecurity. I don't know if you can hear me doing air quotes to the microphone, but I am. Food insecurity. In plain English, that means uh, there are 12.7% of all U.S. households don't have enough food to eat. That's also known as um, it's known as hunger in, in, in America. People in 15.8 million households, according to the World Health Organization, do not have enough food in America. All right, so now what if I, given all that, what if I told you that there's a way that we could wipe out Wipe out poverty tomorrow, gone. 43 million Americans from poor to not poor, like that. It can be done. Just like when we talked in episode uh, number 004 about universal health care, which, by the way, is a fine, fine episode that you should uh, listen to if you haven't already. Uh, but just like we talked about there, providing every American with a decent standard of living could be accomplished with precious little effort and with great benefit to everyone, whether you're poor, middle class, or even rich. Universal basic income, providing unconditional cash payments to every American citizen, no strings attached. Here's your money. Thanks for being American. No government agency is going to come around and track how your money is spent and what you're doing with it. No one's going to be asking for documents to prove you're worthy of the money. Nothing but some cash for you so you don't have to be poor. Because in this country, it should sicken every single one of us that anyone here goes hungry. And so this was the thought on, uh, on April 16th, 1970, when the House of Representatives voted by uh, vote... Uh, what was it, 243-4 and 155 against, approving President Nixon's family assistance plan, uh, which would have guaranteed the equivalent of uh, $10,000 in, in, in 2016 money uh, to annual, as an annual payment to every poor family in the country. And most expected the plan to pass the Senate, too, because th that was even more progressive than the House. But Democrats, in keeping with their character, opposed the bill saying it didn't go far enough. And because it didn't go far enough, well, shit, let's, uh, let's just kill the whole thing. Um, a similar bill, part of a larger package, sailed through the House again in 1971, the next year, but once again sputtered in the Senate. And... And by the time the 70s came to a close, the right had taken up the centuries-old and entirely disproven argument that poverty is a symptom of, you know, idleness and vice, those dirty, dirty, dirty poor people who deserve to be poor because they're so lazy and hooked on drugs. Um, and thus, you know, that's just 
that, that, that there went the opportunity to provide a, a humane and level playing field in America, just poof. But today, I mean, with people like Elon Musk and other Silicon Valley titans uh, jumping on the universal basic income bandwagon, um, there's some renewed interest in the in a plan that provides money to people as a right of citizenship. Now, how how much money and what it would or would not replace of our current tattered safety net, um, it, it, it's up for debate. Now, progressives, um, there are some progressive proposals, like you'll, you'll hear in a few minutes, uh, that would provide basic income independence of the current welfare system. Um, and there is there are libertarians who would uh, do away with the entire system that we currently have in favor of putting money directly into citizens' hands. But I think this actually kind of proves the point. This is an idea that's accepted by progressives and libertarians. You couldn't get them to agree on... Jeez, you couldn't get them to agree on anything. Uh, but they agree on this, that uh, maybe this might be might be a, a decent idea. It's just they're, haggle, they're, they're arguing over the implementation, how it, should, how it should happen, not whether it should. So like I said, on, to, on the show today, I'm going to talk to Carl uh, Widerquist. Boy, I keep trying to mangle his name. Uh, I apologize to you, Carl. Uh, co-chair of the Basic Income Earth Network. He's a really smart guy who knows a lot more about this than I do, and we have a good long chat. Uh, now, I usually save this kind of thing for the end of the show, but you know we, you know we have a Twitter page, right? We at We Are Here Pod is the handle. Did I say that right? Yes, at We Are Here Pod. It would be super, super neato if you would follow us. Uh, Facebook, too. We're also on the Facebook, facebook.com, We Are Here Podcast. All right, I, I, I hate doing that, but all right. That's, that, I'm going to do it again later anyway, but it would be really great to hear from you. Uh, okay, so there we go. Universal basic income. Coming up, a smart guy named Carl schools me on uh, universal basic income. Please stay tuned. The loudspeaker spoke up and said, "All right, let's uh, let's just start out. And why don't you tell me uh, just." Because I I don't know that uh, that I knew anything about it prior to doing a little bit of investigating. What is the Basic Income Earth Network? The Basic Income Earth Network is a worldwide organization of support, well people who are interested at least in uh, basic income. It was started in 1986 by a group of academics uh, who met you know, from all over Europe who were met in Belgium. And then it was a European-based organization called the Basic Income Earth Network. In 2004, I believe it was, the group voted to expand to being a, a global network and, and change its name to the Basic Income Earth Network. It currently has 300 official members uh, but ten, uh, two, two dues-paying members, but it has 10,000 uh, uh, subscribers to its newsflash, its email newsflash, and it has, um, it has I think, 20,000 or 25,000 unique hits per month or per day or something like that on its website. Okay. Big difference and between twenty thousand per month and per <laughs> I, per day, but it's one of those. 
but uh, a goodly number of people accessing your information. Yeah. Um, so, what is the, what is the purpose behind the uh, behind the network? The purpose behind the network is to promote discussion and better understanding of the basic income. Now, uh, so BN is not so much a, uh, it's not really directly uh, an organization aimed at promoting the basic income. It's, uh, uh, it serves the movement of people who are promoting it but uh, serves them by providing news and providing, providing conferences every year for people to, to come and discuss the idea. But it's really a forum for discussion and, a, and an information organization rather than directly doing promotion of it itself. It is overwhelmingly the people who are involved with BN are supporters of basic income. But BN does not try to organize the movement in any way. It gives the movement a form. It gives the movement information, largely because we don't have a worldwide polity. We have local governments. We have regional governments and national governments. And the politics in each of those places are different in every country. And it doesn't make sense for, it doesn't make sense for one organization to try to lead a movement worldwide when the movement for basic income is different in every country. And there is uh, an organization that's just getting started to promote a worldwide version of basic income, but uh, we're not doing that either because we think the movement and the idea of basic income needs, it needs a uh, it needs just the facts reporting like we provide. It needs forums for discussion like we provide on our website, uh, in our news website and other part, and in our conferences. It needs these forums. It needs this information. So uh, we think we have a role to play in the movement even though uh, we're not really, in that sense, as an organization, part of the movement. Although I'd say most people involved with uh, with BN are involved in the movement in some other ways. Gotcha. So you're really more of an information broker rather than an advocacy organization. Yes. Okay. All right. Very good. All right. Now, as an information broker, then um, tell me, just give me a uh, you know, give me the the view from thirty thousand feet. What is universal basic income? Universal basic income is is defined as an unconditional cash payment given out universally according to citizenship. So every citizen gets it by, uh, by right of citizen with no conditions attached. They don't have to work. They don't have to be looking for work. Um, they don't have to prove that they need it. Everyone gets it. Everyone in, no one out. It's a universal payment like uh, the healthcare system in most countries, like the right to vote in most countries. Now, it's another way of looking at it is, uh, is that it is simply, uh, well, it could be combined with any sort of economy, but you'll look at it and combine with the kind of economies we have. A basic income is a market economy where income doesn't start at zero. And income doesn't have to start at zero. Um, we, can, we have plenty of room to have work incentives 
where uh, we have plenty of room to have work incentives um, so that uh, the, to give by giving people higher incomes than this basic level, that's our room for work incentives. And that way, we're giving people a positive incentive to work, not giving them this negative incentive to work by threatening them and causing them to live in poverty and destitution if they do not accept or are unable to accept whatever jobs are on, are on offer. You said that the, uh, the universal basic info, I- income is unconditional. If it's unconditional, then that means it, you know, it definitely goes out, to, you know, it goes out to everyone without any restriction whatsoever. So essentially what you're talking about is really money for existing, correct? Yes. Okay. Well, and, well in a sense, it's money for existing. But um, in a sense... It is not money for existing, but uh, we are paying people back for, for, uh, for things that harm them very much, that have been imposed on them against their will. It is money for existing, but it is definitely not money for nothing. Okay, I'm going to need you to dig a little deeper on that. How is it, th- how is it then not money for nothing? Okay, um, let's take pollution, and other harmful effects that we do to the environment. Every day, um, corporations and individuals are polluting the environment and doing things that are harmful to the long-term survival of this this planet, not only doing things that to the environment that you might like, such as harming animals that you enjoy having animals in the wild, and you enjoy having wild territory, all of those things, that is an obligation to say, oh, we get to use the uses in this world. We're using your lungs and the entire atmosphere that you breathe as a sinkhole. We polluted every river in this, in this country so that it's undrinkable, so that you now have to have plumbing, and you have to pay for your plumbing to get, to get water or something like that. Um, so we've done all these things to you, but we've never paid for it. The government has given, has really taken from you and given to these polluters and say, oh, here's what was yours. Now we've given it to these other people free, and they're not giving you one cent of compensation for it. You might say, oh, but those companies that create all that pollution, they give me jobs. But wages are for my labor. Wages do not compensate me from the obligations that the polluters have put on me, they should pay for that. They should pay for that up front, not with some amorphous thing, oh, if you let us pollute, we'll create some jobs. Well, give us some money up front, then we'll do it. I just came out with a book called, uh, called Prehistoric Myths in, in Modern Political Philosophy, co-authored with the anthropologist. Uh, uh, Grant McCall, where we argue that that's a claim that people have been making, well, philosophers have been making it for at least 350 years since people like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke were, were popularizing it, but actually humans have been making it as long ago as the first Chinese emperor that said it nearly 3,000 years ago. People have been passing on this claim that, oh, current social arrangements make you all better off than you would be as those naked savages. But if you actually look, what do, what, how do people who live as subsistence farmers or hunter-gatherers live, if you look at how they live, it's bad compared to most of us. 
But as Thomas Paine recognized over 200 years ago, compared to the poor of our cities, it is a continual holiday. The, uh, there are a lot of advantages of this. And if you could imagine, if you tried to call my bluff and said, uh, suppose we had a commons, uh, and, and suppose we took, uh, say, a huge area of Queens and made that a commons so that uh, people, people from the ghetto could use it. Um, now, uh, and they could use it to start their own business, become systems farmer or whatever. And they, if they, they just had to give up whatever jobs and stuff they had. Um, if, if they did that and nobody wanted to trade, if nobody wanted it, if everybody's like, wow, my position in your society is so better than going building that log cabin in that good environment when I can grow the food I need or hunt or gather fish and farm the, the, the money I need. My job is so much better. I don't want it. If nobody took it, you'd, you'd call my bluff at least on the second of my two points. But you know what? That's not going to happen. People, if you, if you understand what homelessness is like, and if you really compare the way homeless people live and the way uh, indigenous peoples who still live in this sort of manner do, uh, that a person with the right training in how to live a subsistence, they could not afford to trade places with the lowest of the low. They, the, the, the better move for them would be to take the access to resources. They've never been compensated for that. And that compensation is 5,000 years overdue. So this is effectively the universal basic income, in, in your opinion anyway, is, is a way to essentially recompensate um, people for what they, do, what they no longer have. It, it compensates them for the duties. It's not that they have them, that, that for the duties that have been po- imposed on them. I'm not making any statement about who should own the earth. I'm just saying if nobody owns the earth, I'm free to use the whole earth. But the government has decided that some people own the earth and I'm born into a world where the rest of the world is owned and I don't own any, unless I'm an heiress or an heir. Um, I, I, this duty is imposed on me. And when you impose a, a duty that's not the same duty you're imposing on everybody else, but a higher duty for some and a lower duty for others, then you have to compensate people for that duty. So it's, it, is, it, is, um, it is a compensation for freedom that you have that the government has taken away and given to capitalist property owners. Gotcha. Okay, very good. Um, now, where does what sort of compensation is it? I mean, because that seems to be just a, a very localized sort of thing in the places that are have have tried it or are or currently in the in the process of trying it. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you know what sort of number you can put on that compensation? Well. Um... I can't speak for the whole basic income movement. Everybody in the basic income movement has a different plan. There are variations on a theme. Some are minimal. Some are maximal. Some be, uh, and uh, some work in very different ways. I can tell you what I think. I think that the basic income has to be at least enough that, meet, that it meets your basic needs. Food, shelter, clothing, uh, and if hopefully medical care is, is, is uh, covered by some other program. If not, it's got to be enough to buy medical care um, and, um, and a cushion 
so that you can buy those other things that give you that are that that make up the basic necessities of life and don't fall into those categories. So you can do things that facilitate interacting with your friends and things like that. So uh, food, shelter, clo- assuming uh, some transit. Uh, sorry, assuming public streets and medical care are provided in kind and a healthy environment are provided in kind, food, shelter, clothing, and enough to live on is the minimum. The maximum, I would say, is the highest sustainable basic income. I think because you're being compensated for uh, for non, uh, non-equal duties that the government is imposing on you, you should be compensated at the maximum possible level. That's what I want. Now, in dollar terms, it depends whether you're talking about what the uh, uh, we are talking about the official poverty level or something higher. Because the official poverty level is about uh, twelve thousand dollars a year for a single person living alone, and I think sixteen and change for uh, a two-person family it goes down. So children, you could do more cheaply. So for a get started proposal, I I look at a twelve thousand a year a twelve thousand a year uh, and for adults and six thousand a year for children, and then for um, a more ambitious one, I look at twenty thousand a year for adults and ten thousand for children. That one I am I'm extremely confident that neither of those are above the highest sustainable level. And uh, I would prefer starting with the lower figure and gradually working up to the higher one, see how it goes. Um, but uh, it's possible you could go much higher than, than the largest figure. I, um, I think starting, I could even start at the $20,000 level. Starting a much above that, I think, might be economically risky. Okay. And how does, uh, now I, this is also something I'm, I'm going to ask you and you're going to tell me there's 150 different ways to pay for it, but how does it get paid for? I'm working on a paper right now, which will hopefully be an article very soon, where I give some very simple back of the envelope estimates of the net cost of basic income. And what I find is for the $12,000 version, it would cost, uh, in net terms, that is how much you're actually redistributing from the net contributors to the program to the net beneficiaries. Uh, uh, Want to hazard again? I don't. No. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. $539 billion a year. Now, the net cost of the higher figure is $1.8 trillion a year. Now, those sound like a lot of money, but you know how much the government is currently spending for transfer payments right now, it's over $2 trillion per year. So we're, we're spending over $2 trillion a year already to maintain people's income, and we still have, we still have 13.5% of the population living in Poverty. Something is not quite working with our entitlement spending. But now the um, so with that thirteen. So 
so when you think about it, now some of those, some of those entitlements are for things that are not directly about poverty, such as one of the things that we do with Social Security is make sure old and disabled people aren't in poverty. But another thing we do is give them a reward for their contribution. Oh, you worked until you got disabled or you worked until you retired. We want to give them a little extra. Um, some of those entitlements are medical spending. You don't want to get rid of that. Some of them are veterans, veterans benefits. You don't want to get rid of that. But there are things that you might be able to get rid of, and those are going to be controversial. So I haven't looked well, yeah, at... Yeah, like what? What would you get rid of? Um, well, the average social... Okay, um, when I say $12,000 a month, when I say $12,000 a month, that's uh, $1,000 a year. The average... $12,000 or $1,000 a month. $12,000 a year is $1,000 a month. Right. Um, now... The average payment for food stamps is $125 a month. Correct. Now, I'm pretty sure every food stamp recipient would really lot rather have $12,000 in cash per year than $125,000 in food stamps. So maybe you could, so you could replace that one without harming anybody. You could replace uh, the – well, uh, you could replace some parts of the – you could replace some parts of the uh, unemployment insurance and of temporary assistance of needy families. You could replace some parts of those, uh, maybe all of those. I don't know. And uh, I'm sure. And, and I think the goal of basic income is not to give Social Security recipients twelve thousand more dollars on top of the Social Security. It's to make sure everybody is at least at twelve thousand. So you could say, okay. Um, everybody, if you get Social Security, we're going to take that out of your basic income. Only, and basic income will be a top-up on your Social Security if, you're below, if your Social Security is below 12000 And sadly, a lot, uh, there are something like, uh, I don't have that figure right in front of me, but something like 10, is it 10 million, I think 10 million Social Security recipients still living in poverty. So you're going to help a lot of Social Security recipients, but you're also going to save a lot of money by saying, okay, this covers, you know, we're going to do this in, a, in what we call in economics a hold harmless reform, or that's more in public policy, a hold harmless reform, where you introduce this reform and against the other entitlements, and you only take out things from those entitlements that won't harm any of the recipients. So no one is harmed by this. Now, with $2 trillion in entitlement spending and $1 trillion of that going to support people's income and basic income costing, five, at this level, costing $539 billion a year, it's, good, it's easy to imagine we can pay for a big chunk of that just by this hold harmless provision replacing these other things. Now, the rest we could do by, say, cutting corporate welfare, which is an enormous part of the budget. Even the defense budget, a lot of that is really corporate welfare. Yeah, they're buying things the Pentagon doesn't even want because some company has given a bribe, I mean a campaign contribution, <laughs> to a bunch of members of Congress right. and said, hey, I think, you, I think I'll give you this campaign contribution, and then you're going to buy this really expensive stuff from my firm. That's what a lot of the defense money is. Not to mention defense waste, like uh, military bases we don't need anymore. Um, of so around the world, you can yeah. save money there, you can save with corporate welfare, and uh, um, 
with the obviously corporate welfare and government uh, government giveaways um, to corporations, and you can save right? and you can have higher taxes on the wealthy who have had an enormous increase in their after-tax income in the last 40 years and can definitely pay more. So uh, you can have higher taxes or you could really, if you look at the amount of corporate welfare and, uh, and um, entitlement saving we could do, it's conceivable we could pay for this with no net tax crease, increase on anyone. Now, uh, I don't know that that's sure. You'd have to go through the whole budget to find that, to find that out and look for what could we save? And of course, any effort to do that is going to come up with political barriers. Even the whole harmless political uh, things, which will make uh, which will make recipients better off, will have political barriers. So the extent you can do that, but the thing is, it is feasible. It is it is economically and budgetarily feasible. The only thing is, we have to want to do it. We have to want to live in a country where none of us lives in fear of poverty and not and. All of us are free to say, hey, this, this job is no good. I can afford to walk, so I can go and find a better job. Um, it's not just for the poor. This is for the middle class to get you a better share of the economy that you've contributed to. Yeah, because how many people out there, uh, you know, if they had a choice, would stay in the job that they're in? You know, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's a, a good portion of people who would say, you know what, if I don't have to do this. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I won't <laughs> I'll go find something that I like to do. So that then that then increases the 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 mobility and the uh, and the the drive, frankly, of a whole lot of people that uh, don't necessarily have it currently. Correct? Yes. And what it does is, yeah, I mean, dead end jobs are stultifying. So it gives people a chance to look for something they really want to do. But also it. Um, it does two other things that I want to mention. One is that that it is a it is it it, it gives people the ability to to command. To, it gives sorry it gives it creates a better incentive. We have a big incentive problem in in the country today that basic income solves. Everybody thinks it's, it's going to be bad for incentives, but it actually solves this enormous incentive problem we have. We have this incentive problem where employers have an incentive to pay very low wages because income starts at zero. So with income starting at zero, that gives employers as a whole an incentive to pay very low wages. And you can, live, you can work full-time all year and still live in poverty in this country because employers don't have an incentive to share the benefits that you produce with you as much as they do. And this could give them a bigger incentive. And that doesn't just affect the poor because it affects everyone who could conceivably walk from the job. So this gives the middle class a better opportunity to get better wages. It gives people who employ middle class people a better wage. You know what else it does for the middle class is the second thing that I want to get to is that is that the the this twelve thousand dollar plan that I'm looking at phases uh, phases out. Well, it doesn't phase out. You get the basic income no matter what, but you're you become a net contributor rather than a net beneficiary um, when your taxes add up to more. I'm looking at a version where you tax uh, the income of people who are also uh, net contributors 
uh, 50%. So the marginal tax rate for people at that end of the income spectrum is 50%. Whether you want 50% to be for everybody or just that group is, a, is another question. Uh, right now, I think our top tax rate is 35, 33, something in that range. So um, it's, I think it's 33. Yeah. 33. And it's actually often higher for people who are, who are at the low end because of, uh, because of uh, benefits that they lose along the way. It's actually much higher than 50%. So, um, so what you do then, so by doing that, if you get $12,000, if you get $12,000 and then you're taxed 50 cents on the first dollar you make, that means you make one dollar. You got twelve thousand dollars and fifty cents. If you make that means if you make twelve thousand dollars after taxes and after your basic income, you have eighteen thousand dollars, and you're not fully phased out. A single person is not a net contributor to their income is over twenty-four thousand dollars. Well, you've got to have something better than than a minimum wage job to be making twenty-four thousand dollars a year. A lot of working people make less than that, and that's for a single person. Now, if you, add, if you add a couple of kids to that, then your basic income, say you're a single parent with two kids, and uh, we, don't eat, we expect single parents with kids to work, but we don't provide daycare for them, so I don't know how they can afford to work, um, but, you, uh, but you, you are this basic income recipient. So you get that $12,000 for you, Six thousand for each of your kids. That's twenty-four thousand. Well, you're not going to become a net contributor to until you make forty-eight thousand dollars. Well, I know a lot of teachers and police officers who are going to be net beneficiaries of this. I had carpenters, plumbers, uh, builders, people with skilled, highly skilled labor. You got to go to school for four years to become a teacher, and a lot of teachers are going to be net beneficiaries of this unconditional basic income grant that people think is, is, is for layabouts. It is for the middle class who haven't gotten a raise in real terms in 40 years. And it'll help lots and lots of people. And it's going to, at a net cost of $539 billion. Where, where has a universal basic income, where has, where is a program like this been done and have and and been successful at the type of scale that i'm talking about it has not been attempted before it's a it's a new policy it's a first time for everything you know when old aid pensions come along those have never been tried before when food stamps came along they've been never been tried when national health came along that had never been tried uh when uh when a lot of things came along when the moonshot came along it hadn't been tried before it's never been tried to this extent However, we have things that are similar. So the, in Alaska, they have a very... I was going to ask you about yeah, Alaska. They have a very small basic income, which was varying between one and 2,000 a year and occasionally more than 2,000 a year. That's very small. But uh, even if that very small one has helped Alaska become one of the most economically equal country in a, a state in the United States and have one of the lowest poverty rates of any state in the United States. For a long time, it was number one. Now it's not. And they've cut it back to a thousand even, which I think is a very bad choice for Alaska, but that's another, 
and that was imposed on them by the governor against uh, a lot of will against the state legislature and um, by an executive. Uh, I should back up just a little bit. What you're talking about is the Alaska Permanent Fund. Yes. It's called a Permanent Fund Dividend. Right. And that was established when? Sometime in the 1970s, right? Well, um, it it gradually came into being over an eight-year period from from, uh, 1976 to 1982. But the first payment after... After fully setting up the program and this part of it and that part of it and going through legal challenges, the first payment went out in 1982. So it's been going strong for, uh, what's, what's that, 35 years now. Um, and in, in, in a lot of periods, Alaska was the only, only state that was getting more equal while the other states were getting less equal. And because of, because of this permanent fund dividend, every person in Alaska gets a it gets a check once a year for, as you said, sometimes up to $2,000, but now it's around $1,000. They get that simply for being a resident of the state of Alaska. Now, where does that pool of money come from, though? Well, that comes from, that comes from a duty that has been imposed on individuals. Um, bef- um, once upon a time the, uh, in the 1960s, the north slope of the north slope of Alaska was open land, uh, state-owned. Uh, okay, the state took it from the Indians, uh, who's, uh, who were, are Inuits, who are uh, uh, technically counted as a different group than other Native Americans. Uh-huh. Um, and the, uh, of course, the state took it from them, but uh, they at least got some conversation, comp- special compensation for this oil. But uh, oil was found there. And usually what happens when, in the vast majority of times in the history of the world, when somebody finds something valuable on government-owned land or land that's not owned by anybody, they grease the right palms and the powers that be and some crony of whoever's in charge gets it for free. Usually they fix it up and then they sell it back to us. But oil, we tend not to treat oil that way. For some reason, we tend to treat oil differently, and we tend to actually charge people for the oil we take out of the ground. We do that totally different than we do for bottled water. Most, in most states, if you take bottled water out of the ground, you don't pay any more in taxes than the person next door to you that has a residential home that only takes out what they're drinking and washing their dishes and taking a bath with. Yeah. So ask that's, the, ask the, the people, the ask the people of Michigan how happy they are about Nestle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but oil, for some reason, we treat it different. So, and look at that. There's, for a while, you had no duty uh, on you. That land was up there. And if you felt like going up and using that land, you could use it. But then the government imposed the duty and said, oh, you can't use all this land anymore, even though we didn't want you know, maybe a lot of people didn't want to use an ore soap of Alaska other than the Inuit. Um, we're still going to compensate everybody for it. So, okay, they took a, um, well, they undercharged the oil companies because that's what the United States does. Um, they're charging the oil company about half of what Norway charges oil companies for uh, drilling its oil. Norway finds oil companies willing to do it for half the price that Alaska gets. Um, and, uh, and there's still private companies perfectly willing to invest in Norway oil. Now, 
So, so half of it is still a giveaway to the oil companies, but the other half, the state get, and some feds, but mostly the state gets money for it. The state gets money, and 90% of that money it uses for immediate spending, which is a horrible idea um, because it's a temporary income. And that income's going to run out, and they're going to have to look for other sources when that income runs out. The income's already funding short. So this idea of living high off the hog on this temporary income has been a bad idea. Other parts, they put in various funds. And one of those funds is the Alaska Permanent Fund. And from the Alaska, that was established in 76. Mm -hmm. And then, then they had to decide what to do with that permanent fund. And by 19... 82, they've decided and gone through a court challenge that they're going to use that fund to support the permanent fund dividend, which is going to go out in a check to every single citizen, the same for every man, woman, and child. They're not doing half for children like I'm thinking about. So that means, say you're a single, you're, you're single, you're, you're, the, you're the poorest of the poor. You are a single mother with, with, with four kids. These are traditionally the poorest people you get other than a single mother with five kids. You know. That single mother with four kids is going to get, on a good year, they're going to get $2,000 for each member of the household. That's $10,000. Mm -hmm. uh, $10,000 $10, is an awful lot of money to a single mother. It's a lot of money to me, and I make good money. Um, it's, and it's an awful lot of money to that single mother with four kids. That's going to make a huge difference, even if it doesn't get her out of poverty. And it's going to make a huge difference for people near poverty. And even on a bad year, on a bad year of $1,000, that single mother with four kids is getting $5,000. So that's why basic, uh, the proto extra small basic income they have in Alaska is so valuable to making it a low poverty and a low inequality state. And, and a deeply red state, it should be pointed out too. So it is something that is po can be popular across the political spectrum once it's in place. You've got to get this thing in place and people find out, wow, this really works. Uh, I think one way, well, one way to get in place is to say, look, we're tired of we're tired of inequality growing and growing and poverty staying where it is or growing. We're tired of that. Um, the entire middle class wants a pay raise. Nothing else has worked. Let's try basic income. Another way is to realize what a good deal basic income is for people who, uh, for lack of a better word, capitalists, people who like capitalism, people who own businesses, people with the other income, perspective, the higher income perspective, libertarians, conservative Republicans, it's a good deal for them because it gets out a lot of the bureaucracy. It's not paternalistic. It's a very simple program. It's not a big government program where there's a lot of supervision and stuff like that. All it does is take the minimum in basic, in, the minimum in our society, make it non-zero. It's still, you know, you're starting out at poverty, and then the whole market economy works where nobody lives in poverty. But otherwise, it's a market economy. It's really a great deal, and I think it's a better deal than, in a lot of ways, it's a better deal than a lot of redistribution we're doing now, which is going with these cumbersome, uh, clumsy policies. Uh, if you could cut even a little from those, 
even a quarter of those and make it this, or even half of those and do, uh, you know, it might be worth a little tax increase for uh, to get conservatives on board if they really think how this is going to work. Um, and it is possible to do it without any tax increase, as I argued before. What makes you think that this is more successful, um, giving cash payments to people, rather than what we currently do, the, you know, like the in-kind um, payments, like, uh, like uh, the food stamp program or AFDC, um, or even, for that matter, on unemployment insurance. What, um, what is different about handing people a check for you know, $1,000 a month as opposed to going through the programs that we have now? Why, does, why would this work better? Oh, there are so many things. So many things that I, I can't list them all, but let me start with one of them. One is that it, uh, it solves this incentive problem I've been talking about. It's an incentive problem where we have businesses that pay these, that, that pay these low wages. When you have things that are saying, okay, the current system we have in almost every country is if you can show you that you can't work, maybe you're eligible for something. And if you, or you, if you can show that you can't find a job, maybe you're eligible for something. If you can't show that you, uh, if you're not eligible for anything, and, or if you can't show that you can't work, um, then you're eligible for nothing. And that puts most of the workforce in this position where they have no other choice but to work and if they, if to take a job. And when you give, put people and give them that that awful, difficult choice, you give this very low incentive, incentive for low wages. And from that, we get poverty wages where um, a large percentage of our population, I think it is something like 8%, uh, 10% of, I, I don't know the exact figure, a large percent of our population works all year at full time and still lives in poverty. We also, that also creates a situation where a much larger percentage of our population works all year and lives near poverty, lives say 150%, uh, under 150% of the poverty line. I think if you work hard, you really ought to be well out of poverty. And then you get this situation where the middle class hasn't had a raise in 40 years. Um, in real terms, all of the growth that we've had, or just about all of it, has not been shared with the middle class. Almost all of it has gone to the top 1% or 2%. And government statistics back this up very well. So you have this incentive problem where the way our incentives have been going for the last 40 years, it's going to the top and not to the middle or to the bottom. And we're, and we're, we're causing the bottom to live in poverty. Um, now, Another thing it does is that it has, that the existing system has cracks, where when you've got all these conditional systems, you are, you, you are saying that there's going to be somebody who doesn't meet any of these conditions. And, and there are going to be people who don't meet those conditions. Now, some people that will meet almost anybody's definition of truly needy fall through those cracks. And I'd say in the United States, that's a lot of people. Some people you might not think are so needy, but uh, maybe they're needy in ways that you don't understand. Um, and so these people are falling through the cracks. And with 13.5% of the population, what's that? Multiply that's about 40 million people living in poverty or more. 
that there's a lot of people falling through cracks, whereas basic income has no cracks. Even the lower figure, I, I, uh, the $12,000 version I told you, that one eliminates poverty for everyone. And that doesn't just help 13.5% of our population. That, because a lot of people are in poverty for a few years and then out. A lot of people experience poverty at various times throughout their life. So that's going to help just by relieving the risk of poverty. You're going to help, I don't know how many, I don't know what percentage of people ex tend to experience poverty at some point in their life, but a lot more than 13%. And you're going to help all those people. And then there's another group of people you're going to help. You're going to help people who are afraid of poverty. You're going to help the middle class who have this anxiety that someday they'll be poor. And that anxiety hangs over all of our heads unless you're independently wealthy and you've got enough money saved off that you can live forever. And I tell you, this, uh, you can live for the rest of your working days before any pension kicks in. And I tell you, there's a lot of people that are one year from pension that if they, don't, if they lost their job today would be in poverty. So uh, it, it helps, and, and yeah, you bet those people are afraid. Um, so, well, some of, them, some of them have more reason to fear than others, but that anxiety hangs behind us. We could free people from that anxiety. Uh, these other programs tend to, okay, another reason, uh, these other programs tend to have very high overhead costs. That wasted. You could save a lot of administrative costs when you got high overhead programs such as unemployment insurance, such as such as aid to families with dependent children. We're always supervising people and supervising people and telling them, and, and you got to pay somebody to tell the poor what to do. You could cut out those middlemen and just give the poor a little money so they're not poor and help the middle class while you're at it. Um, so it has really an enormous amount of advantages. That's just off the top of my head. I could probably sit here and list a whole bunch more. <laughs> no, I think that's good. Now, aside from uh, aside from the you know the very tangible benefits of of eliminating poverty, let's not um, you know let's not de-emphasize that. Um, what are some of the more intangible benefits of this sort of, of universal basic income? The um, you started to touch on it a little bit uh, when you were talking about the, the alleviation of you know work and you know, poverty anxiety. Um, can you speak to a little bit of the uh, more intangible benefits to society? Oh yeah, I'm fine. I'm surprised those weren't the first things that occurred to me off the top of my head. One of those is education, retraining, and moving to a better job. There's uh, a motivational speaker, who I won't name because I think he's a charlatan, but even every charlatan probably comes up with a good thing, uh, with some good ideas here and there. Yeah, broken this, clocks right twice a day, right? Yeah, and this guy said, we spend so much time making our living that we never have time to plan our lives. And a lot of people are stuck in bad careers that don't work for them or low-skilled occupations because they need that money to keep them going and they can't afford to retrain and pursue something they really enjoy and make a real contribution. Uh, if I, 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 uh, the person who created the Linux operating system, which is used by computers all over the world, did that in Finland while, working, while living off of government 
redistributive benefits. Uh, you, uh, we, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, Oprah Winfrey was on welfare part of the time she got started, and I think the same is true for J.K. Rowling, the best-selling author in the history of fiction writing or something like that. Um, so, but, so it can do something very big things you get people out of, but it also little things for little people, uh, for the little people like you and me. Somebody who, is, uh, who, um, who majored in the wrong thing and is working in a, in, in a coffee shop to make ends meet after they've got their associate's degree or their, or their four-year degree is working in a coffee shop and can't afford to quit and stay study carpentry, which they'd really like to do, or get into the tech industry or something. They have no time to do that. Basic income does that. And this is related to another intangible benefit that, that um, the Swiss campaign put forward when they, were, when they were promoting basic income, is that is, what would you do if your income was taken care of? What would you do if you were free to pursue what you wanted to, not what you had to to stay alive? Well, you know, I think a lot of us would still want to work because if just your basic income is taken care of, you don't get a lot of luxuries. You do a job for somebody, you can get a lot more luxuries. So we've got a lot of good incentives we can have there. But you can take your time and say, what do I really want to do? Where do I really want to go? What else can I do? What else can I do with our life? And it also gives us an opportunity to do things that maybe we haven't even thought of that would be good for all of us. We, right now, we have a five-day work week. We've got seven days. We've got seven days of, of in a week, and used to be a used to be the poorest people in the world were forced by their betters to work seven days a week. Uh, and uh, uh, thanks to the Sabbath, we got that down to six days a week. And thanks to unions, we got that down to five days a week. But it's pretty much been stuck at 40 hours a week, uh, five days a week for the last 40 years. And now technology, uh, every, technology every year gives us the opportunity to either work less and consume the same or work the same and consume more. And most of us haven't gotten that in the last 40 years. So this gives us the possibility to, take, to have shorter work hours, to the flexibility of shorter work hours, and do things that most of us haven't even thought of. I, I go back to that seven-day, that five-day work week. We have a five-day work week. Why don't we have a nine-decade uh, sorry, a nine-year work decade. I worked for nine years. Let me have a sabbatical. Professors get it. I'm a professor. I'm on sabbatical right now, and I can tell you it's great. And you know what? I'm getting more work done on my sabbatical than I do when I'm on the job because I can pursue the types of work that I love most with most of my time. So sabbatical. Why do only professors get sabbaticals? Why do only teachers get, get, uh, get more than two weeks a year vacation? Teachers and people very high up in the income spectrum get more than two weeks of vacation for a, a year in this country. We could have a month vacation for a year. We could have a nine-year work decade, and we could all have a sabbatical every 10 years, or maybe less for all I know. Imagine what a benefit it would be way up, not just to people who make who make 
uh, a lower middle class income like thirty, forty, fifty thousand income, people make a hundred thousand dollars a year, two hundred thousand dollars a year would really benefit from the nine year work decade. And once you got basic income and people start to say, Yeah, this is what I want, that's the kind of thing people might be able to get. So all these intangible benefits we might get out of it. You, know, you brought up the uh the advance of technology. Now, I, I did want to touch on some of that just a little bit in automation. I, there's a statistic I read actually just uh, a couple hours ago for that uh, 47% of all jobs can be uh, replaced by automation within the next 20 years. Um, that's nearly half. That's nearly half the jobs that exist today can be replaced by a machine within the next 20 years. Now, even um, tech giants like uh, Elon Musk have endorsed um, some form of universal basic income. Um, is this an idea whose time has just finally come simply because the, t the march of technology has uh, sped to a, to a sprint? Well, there are two kinds of automation arguments. Uh, uh, for basic income. And you've just given the one that's really popular now. And this, this argument is bringing a lot of people to basic income right now. And it's, it, it makes a lot of sense. There's, there's, there's reason behind it. But I usually don't make much out of that argument. I don't really stick to that argument. I, well, not that I don't stick to it, but I don't usually bring it up or make a big deal out of it, partly because uh, you know, Elon Musk and uh, all these other people are doing that so well for me. Um, but uh, another reason that I don't bring that up is that it gives you, uh, it gives people, um, it gives people a, a very pat response. What was the, what was the figure that, that, that you gave? Forty-seven uh, percent of all jobs currently can be uh, replaced by automation within the next twenty years can be replaced by automation within the next 20 years. Yeah. Okay, um, that's 20 years from now. Okay, so a lot of, one, there's actually two responses of this type. One is, one pat response is, okay, well, let's wait 20 years and see if what you're saying comes true and then do it. So part of this, if you're looking at it, the, oh, automation's gonna do this someday. Well, the people say, well, let's wait for someday. Um, now, but another is uh, people can respond, say, what if, what, what if I told you at the, um, uh, let's see, at the, uh, at the outset of the republic, I don't know, at the outset of the republic, something like 95% of, of Americans, it's 1776, something like 95% of Americans worked on farms. Now, if I was to tell you, okay, well, by the 1960s, I think it was, only 1% of Americans are going to work on farms, you would say, oh, my God, uh, um, we're going to lose, we're going to lose uh, how many percent of farm jobs is that? That's like 90 some percent of farm jobs, 90% of all, well, we're going to lose, uh, what is that, 90 uh, Ninety-four percent of all jobs in the country. What is everybody going to do? We'll need basic income now. So then, your argument has to be that it's going to be different this time. If you're, and now it might may, might be different this time, and it, it's certainly possible it could be different this time. Because there was a time. What if I told a horse 
in, in 1910, what if I told you in 20 years all the jobs horses are doing are going to be gone? In 1910 was the time use of horses in Manhattan peaked. And in, 20, in 10 years, horses were gone. And they were replaced by basically nothing. Very few jobs and uh, very few horses in this country have jobs anymore. The only ones are ones where we really like having horses around because they're horses, like horse racing. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure cats. all the horses are real damn sad about that too. Right? Yeah, well, most of them are no longer alive. Right. Because we stopped, all, the horse population has gone down because, uh, because we decided it's not, worth, it's not worth it to put money into raising and breeding horses when we could put that money into buying cars and other machinery to be beasts of burden so uh now all right so, but even 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 still the 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 march of automation has already cut a whole bunch of manufacturing jobs that uh, despite our our or the orange man in chief are just simply never coming back because well, they've yes, been yes, replaced yes, by yes, machines. It has. it has cut a lot of jobs, but also it has created other jobs. And now it's still not certain at this point that we're on an inevitable trend towards fewer and fewer jobs for people. Okay. Now, um, and if we do, if we're on this trend, um, you know how they say, Drowning doesn't look like drowning. Well, automation doesn't look like automation. People think when we get automation taking our jobs away that we're going to get lower and lower levels of unemployment. That's not what happens when we have automation taking our jobs away. What you get is people who've been in the jobs that are automated are going into the sectors that aren't yet automated and driving the wages down. So what automation really looks like, at least in the short term, is increasing inequality as people's wages go down. So one thing, there could be this trend in this direction, but it's actually not showing up and it's still not showing up as a solid trend in statistics in decline in all jobs because what we're instead getting is an inequality effect. And that's been going on for 40 years. Whether that equality is attributed to the kind of automation I'm talking about or not, I don't know. It would be hard to prove that. I don't know of any studies on it. But let me give you the other automation argument. The other automation argument is present with us now and we know it. The other stuff is partly speculative. But this one we can be sure is with us right now because this argument from automation to basic income has been around at least since the Luddites 200 years ago when textile mills were coming on the scene and they were putting skilled people in the textile industry, which is a craft home industry with highly skilled middle class for the time laborers. And it put them out of business en masse. And a lot of them went around stealing, tech, sorry, stealing smashing textile mills because they were putting them out of business in the Luddite protests. Now, people look back and think that these Luddites were idiots. It's like, no, we needed to replace all of those jobs so we could have the Industrial Revolution and make people better off. Well, the thing is, it didn't make everybody better off right away. And the people who were in the textile industry, it definitely made them worse off many of them for the rest of their lives because they had skills in this industry, their skills didn't transfer to another industry, they had to go down one, two, three levels of skill, often into the lowest wage jobs, so they went from decent middle class jobs 
down into poverty. And automation has been doing that for at least 200 years, and it's doing it right now. It has done it in this recession. It is doing it to people whose jobs are being automated today, and we need basic income to give these people the freedom to retrain themselves so they don't go down a couple of pegs and get stuck there. That's what we need basic income for. We need basic income for the churning that automation creates, even if, on balance, automation will eventually lead to more and better paying jobs. Hey, one last question, um, and this may seem a little bit strange. Uh, what do you think? Can money, in fact, buy you happiness? Um, up to a point, absolutely. Up to about twelve grand a year? Well, I, I don't know. No, <laughs> probably higher than that, and I don't know what point. That's a good question to ask. There are psychologists who study this, and that is a very good question for one of them or somebody re- who recently read, read one of their books or articles, which I haven't. <laughs> I know the basic point. Is that, is that people who are having difficulty meeting their basic needs, which is more than those 13.5% people in our economy. Right. Um, uh, I don't know what it is. It might be the bottom 20%. I, I don't know what it is in the United States. In the world, that's a very large number. But in the United States, let's say it's, some, let's say it's somewhere mm, higher than 13.5. We don't know how much. If you're on the fringe of being unable to meet your basic needs and, and struggling for that. You know, okay, may, maybe some of those, maybe if you've got 13.5 and your income is secure and you've got cheap housing, you, you might not be in this position. But if you're struggling to meet your basic needs, you will be miserable. Um, that's just about your very few people are struggling to meet their basic needs and uh, are beyond miserable. But what you find is after a point, after you get safely free from meeting your basic needs, your income goes up from there, and there's no correlation. After that point, money no longer buys happiness. A billionaire is no likely to be happier than somebody making $50,000 a year. None at all. It does not buy happiness after that. It buys some things that people have reason to value, but not happiness is not necessarily one of them. You should look inward for what's going to make you happy um, once you get to that $50,000 range. Um, So, now, I think that has a lot of important implications for basic income. You know, the first thing we ought to do is making sure nobody's in desperate misery, and basic income can ensure that we're all doing that. Um, So I think, actually, the fact that money could buy happiness only to a point is really a very good argument for basic income. And there we go. Carl uh, Widerquist. Widerquist. Yeah, am I, you got it. Am, uh, Carl White from the Basic Income Earth Network. What's the, uh, what's the website there? Why don't you give it out? It's basicincome.org. There we go, basicincome.org. Carl, I appreciate you taking the time today. I really, I, I really appreciate this. It's been a good discussion. I think this is something that uh, hopefully people will be talking about more and more as we, uh, as we go along. Oh, also, I should say, if you're yeah. uh, if we're giving out websites, I should yeah, say, um, I should say, um, uh, if you're interested in my writing, uh, just go to uh, any search engine and search Carl Weiderquist Selected Works, and that will give you uh, a lot of things that I've written. Um, you can also search me on you know uh, uh, YouTube if you want to see what I've spoken and said like that. Um, so. Uh, 
So, and also I'm the author of, uh, I'm also in addition to co-chair of Basic Income Earth Network, I am uh, associate professor at SFS Qatar Georgetown University, and I am the author of Prehistoric Myths in Modern Political Philosophy, which isn't mostly about basic income, and I'm the author of Freedom as the Power to Say No, which is mostly about basic income. And so if you want to hear more on, want to read more on that, look up Freedom as the Power to Say No. Excellent. Carl Weiderquist, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Okay. My pleasure. Hope that helps. Thank you very much. Take it easy, Noah. You too. Bye. Bye. Yeah, that was a long one, right? Uh, I hope you got something out of it because I really, I know I did. Um, and also, I said I was going to do this again, and I'm doing it. Please follow the We Are Here podcast on the Twitter machine at We Are Here Pod at We Are Here Pod. Go to Twitter right now. Oh wait, did you do it? Or a constant disappointment. Okay. Um, we're also on the Facebook machine, naturally. We've friended your mother there at facebook.com slash we are here podcast. Or you can send me an old fashioned email if you want to tell me how much the show blows. Uh, we are here pod at gmail.com. What is that? We are here pod at gmail.com. I feel like a pitch man. Uh, all right. That's, that's really all I've got. Thanks for coming by. Uh, please, honestly, do tell a friend or an enemy or your kid's homeroom teacher, you know, the one with the, the, the Doc Martens and all the tattoos, or your Aunt Millie, for God's sake, the one who never shuts up and has a three-foot ash hanging from her more brand cigarettes. Tell someone, please, or I swear to God I'm going to come for you. I know where you live. Really, though, I thanks, honestly, thanks for listening. Uh, I'll put something together real soon and talk to you as soon as I can. Take it easy. Shop as usual and avoid panic buying.